A Northern Wine Odyssey podcast is a part of Cork Report Podcast Media. To listen, search for us in Spotify, Apple or Google Plus, and more. Today, I'm talking to my friend Jad Kamal. Jad and I worked at Hearth Restaurant in Manhattan back in the day, oh, right around mm, going on nine years ago or something like that. Uh, we're going to talk about uh, about building your bar, taking it to that next level, since everybody uh, during the pandemic seems to have be- become a home bartender. So you know how to make some drinks. And we're going to talk about how to make more drinks and better drinks. Next week, going to speak with Christy Frank. Christy owned a wine shop for many, many years in Manhattan, New York. She now owns a shop in upstate New York, near uh, not too far from me, where I live in the Hudson Valley. We're going to be talking about the Catawba grape, certainly a very important grape in terms of New York State viticulture. We're also going to talk about Muscat. That's a grape that no one else seems to like except for her and me. Uh, And we're going to talk about Muscat and its variations from around the world and also in New York State. We had a little bit of that growing here too. But first, Jad Kamal, here we go. to a Northern Wine Odyssey series. Thank you, as always, to Dave Miller for the opening and closing music. Check him out at davemillerguitar.com or wherever you purchase music. Joining me today, sommelier and bartender, Jack Kamal. Jack, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Paul, thanks for being Yeah, man. Uh, it was good to see you, even if for a brief uh, moment back last summer, uh, doing yeah. doing a drive-by pickup. <laughs> yeah, you swung by my apartment, and uh, there you were. I had no warning at all, almost no warning <laughs> at all. Man. I had to run out of my pajamas, and and uh, 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 it was the, one of those infamous uh, New York City pop-ins, like on Seinfeld. It was a very New York. It was a yeah. It was a, a mo- one of those moments for sure. Brooklyn, I would say, even more. You know, we had so, the let's, the car. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's go back uh, to, to that moment uh, last uh, June or July, whenever that was. Uh, what have you been up to? Oh, man. Um, well, good question. Um, Surprisingly, uh, a lot has happened in that time period, even though it just feels like one one long day in a lot of ways. Wait, wait, wait. Um, what, what are you talking about? What, what What's happened? Well, I, <laughs> almost. Sorry, bad joke. Depends how you look at it. Um, right, right, right. No, I, I, I mean that like 2020 has been sort of an eventful year for me. I, I feel. I've heard people, um, others talk about how lucky they've been to not have been affected in, you know, some of the more serious ways by the pandemic. And I'm, I'm definitely one of those people. And, um, I've had the, you know, in the summer, I, I, I published fiction for the first time. That was a milestone. Um, I, you know, I attempted to get fit again. Did that with some success. Um, I did some reading. I did some writing. Um, I did some socializing, safe outdoors, of course, all that stuff. Um, I should so, I should add here yeah. that when we met, yeah, you were getting a degree in creative writing from Hunter College, correct? That's correct. And I've been enjoying yeah. reading your stories online ever since then. Thank you so much. That but was you've really had nine years ago. I think so. I started That's working at Hearth and or Terroir in 2012. Okay, then yeah, nine years ago. Okay, I accept. Yeah, that. right about. <laughs> choice. So um, that that's great. You've been busy uh, publishing your words. 
which are good and everyone should read them. Where, uh, where can we find you? Well, I, I published a story in the Florida Review online um, in their online magazine called Aquifer. Um, it's sort of a restaurant-related story, incidentally. Um, so, yeah, check that out. Um, I think I still like it and stand by it, although I haven't checked in a while. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe I hate it now. Um, and uh, I wrote an essay on Medium, um, sort of a critical essay of the um, Nick Lander, who wrote um, in, I believe, Wine Spectator, uh, some words that I didn't like, and I responded to them um, on Medium. So if you search my name on Medium, you'll find that. Uh, and I'm trying to, to do more and publish more, but as of right now, that's, that's what I got. Yeah. Um, well, so you also built yourself a... Uh... A, a not insignificant career as a bartender, creator of drinks, bar manager, yeah. sommelier in New York City. Not an easy thing to do. I know. Um, yeah, it's true. You know, it's not easy um, for anyone. Um, and it's funny almost now to hear myself described that way because it's so much time has passed and it feels like I'm losing. I don't think I am losing fluency, but it feels that way sometimes. Just, you know, the disconnect grows with every day, every hour, really, from the business. I mean, I haven't, like, been on the floor of a restaurant in, I don't know, 10 months now. So um, let's go back uh, uh, to the – let's let's start with Hearth. We, we were both uh, working in the Hearth terroir wine bar universe circa 2012. So yeah. we managed to, uh, to get ourselves into the New York city restaurant scene. Where did you go from there? And, and, and I should add that we were both, let's see, you were working as a server and a bartender at hearth, but you were mostly behind the bar. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I remember, um, when you were there, I was, let's see from there. Um, you mean where did I go from there from that moment or after? Yeah, yeah. Take us, take us uh, through um, through your your various positions yeah. in the different restaurants up up until yeah. right before the pandemic. Yeah. So right around that time, yeah, I was a server and bartender. I was, um, I think, when you were there, I was starting to create a lot of drinks for the cocktail menu um, and working. I believe some brunches too and doing brunch cocktails. Um, and I think shortly thereafter I was only bartending, um, which became my, my only gig there. I think for the last at least couple of years that I worked there, I worked there four and a half years right until, uh, near the end of 2016. Um, so yeah, I, I was, Sort of the 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 cocktail guy there and behind the bar four nights a week um, until I left to pursue another opportunity. Uh, I think it was November of 2016 to become the beverage director at a new restaurant called Ladies um, that was short lived um, for all kinds of reasons. Um, but I was the beverage director there, and so I did. The uh, I did the cocktails there as well, and I also did some, you know, upkeep of the wine list and some of my own um, selections as well. But Paul uh, Greco graciously created a wine list for us, um, and that was the the material that I worked with. Um, oh, and I also did some consulting for him before I worked at Ladies. Um, creating bottled cocktails for Terroir Tribeca um, when they were growing their spirits program. Paul was looking to um, do sipping spirits and cocktails that could be easily um, reproduced by his bartenders at, at Tribeca. Um, and he Who we was, should say were not really yeah. bartenders because there's, there's bartending and then there's wine bar bartending. 
Yeah, it's funny. He had me come and I in. I put myself in the in the latter category there of wine bar bartending. I'm like a fake bartender. Yeah, well, you know, the, no, I think you're just. I think it's just a song, basically, a wine bar bartender, um, essentially. With some, you have some bar uh, skills as well. I don't think there's anything to, to sneeze at there. Although cocktail bartending is it's a completely different thing. Um, I did attempt to teach some of that. Um, and, you know, Paul wanted, Paul, Paul's interest in the whole thing was the seamlessness of it. So we had been doing these um, bottled cocktails at Hearth, um, you know, really just to, I think Chris, it might have been Christine's idea, who was uh, the GM, might have been my idea. Or collaboration. I, I want to give her credit for it if it was that's her idea. But we started doing small bottled cocktails, which, you know, at the time weren't. Now it's. Oh no, Jad, we lost time. you. At the time it was. Oh, uh, you're back. I lost you for oh, like yeah, 10 seconds. Yeah, I don't know what happened. Can you hear me now? Oh, and you sound way better now, oh, which is cool. Weird. My my, I can't hear you in my headphones anymore. But it it just said power on for some reason. So maybe you will have to edit. Oh, okay. But you can we hear can me hear you, somewhere. Yeah, uh, through the computer. Is this better? If this is better, I can do this. This sounds okay. much better. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, let's rock Great. this. Um. So yeah, so we were doing. Uh, these tiny little kind of like four ounce bottles um, sort of as a way to speed. Well, not sort of definitely as a way to, to speed up service because. Yeah. And they were kind of like barrel right. or bottle. Some of them too. Right? Well, we kind of leaned into the, the, the bottle aged thing. We did barrel age um, drinks and do those too. Um, but the bottle aged drinks, you know, they, they were bottle aged as long as they, you know, however long they were sitting in there. We weren't actively bottle aging right. them. Um, although I'm guilty of, you know, sort of using that explanation for suspicious guests who, you know, realized that we were just kind of cheating by batching stuff. Um, and we did, we did our best right. to make it, you know, a sort of fun presentation and make it sort of about service. Um, but yeah, now in hindsight, uh, you know, I won't, there, there's no reason to keep the secret anymore. Like we were, we were trying to speed things up and Paul really liked that. He thought that was just the, the, the coolest thing ever. Um, of course, because those wine bar bartenders who don't really know how to make drinks, all they got to do sure is pour over yeah, I'm sure the light bulb went off in his head immediately to do that. Um, <laughs> Wine bar bartender, I got to stop using that. You're right; they are they are some. Yeah, others. they are. Um, but it's it's true that that most, I mean, not all, but I I think most sommeliers come from waiting tables as opposed to behind the bar because. Sitting at the bar, being behind the bar, it, it, it is more about making drinks and yeah. drinking drinks. Uh, you know, ordering bottles of wine such that it would require a, a, a very fine touch of a sommelier or a very wine interested yeah. server, that happens more yeah. on the floor. So it does sort of make sense that the wine bar server maybe didn't come from that high volume world of making right. drinks. Yeah. And, um, Typically not. I, I can't, rec I mean, I've met a lot of Psalms now and I've met some that have been bartenders too, but there, there are definitely some, are some. Definitely. Um, but, you know, like you said, restaurant bartending and like cocktail bartending are, are kind of two different things. And cocktail bartending for a restaurant is its own thing, um, you know, with its own, its own constraints. And that was, you know, I never... I would never claim to to have been, although I think I had some success making cocktails. I was never, I never worked in a cocktail bar, which has its, it's a completely different universe from um, working in, in a restaurant. 
Um, you know, and yeah, so Paul, Paul basically was, was buying my, um, ability to make, you know, these tiny little cocktails that you just, you just pour, you pop them. Well, I should say, I, I'll go ahead and uh, say it because you're too modest to, I mean, just because you never worked at like, I don't know, pouring ribbons or um, Hotel Del Mano or something doesn't mean that you weren't working with like the finest products yeah. and making really artisanal drinks. Yeah, you definitely no, were. I, I'm really glad. Because, especially because at heart, that was a restaurant that went the extra mile to 100. get the good product. I mean, it was, it was kind ridiculous. of ridiculous. And I fact. knew, I, I mean, knew at the time that I was spoiled in that way, but when you're in it, you can't really, you still can't really appreciate it enough. I mean, looking back and now having worked in three restaurants since then, you know, yeah, and I want to I want to get back to that, but you're a hundred percent right, and we'll we're going to revisit what you're what you're getting at right now, which I th- I think I know what it is. But um, so you ended up after ladies in the the That's Bastianich right. yeah. group. I don't even know. I don't know what it's called anymore. With, oh, with you know what? Italian I don't even know what it's called anymore. And I, what? <laughs> um, but you were there. You were there when he got kicked out, so you stayed, and you you were at a couple different yep. locations. Um, so I was at La Serena when all of that happened, um, and right, and then I went to uh, I went to Lupa when news broke that Serena was going to close because um, everybody, you know, the way the timing happened, everybody sort of assumed that La Serena for those, I guess, who, who don't know what that is, it was this giant, um, kind of like palatial, uh, I think it took up almost the entirety of 16th and 9th right above Tau on, um, there in the, in the meatpacking district. And, you know, it's a, it was a, it was a, a challenging, um, uh, a challenging project to take on in the first place. I mean, the idea that like you could sustain enough volume to keep a place like that in business. I mean, you don't need a, a experience or, or a, a business degree to understand why that would be a challenge. So the place had a lot of challenges anyway. Um, and not, not for, for lack of, of quality or anything like that. It was just like, it's just a huge place you know, a, a really expensive, huge place. Um, it was hard to sustain. Uh, so not to get too tang- tangential, but I think everyone assumed that, um, you know, this was just another shoe dropping after the Batali news broke. And yeah, there's a connection for sure. But um, it wasn't like, oh, you know, now they have to start closing restaurants because nobody's going to them. Um which wasn't really true. I mean, like Babo and Lupa, um, you know, were, were still humming along for, for quite some time after that. Um, and so was the spotted. Pig. Yeah, sure. Um, spotted. Pig, I mean, I wouldn't know. Yeah. I, I, I've never been to the spotted pig, but, um, no, it, it stayed busy up until the, you know, the real yeah. wacky uh, misbehaving and, and publication of such uh, got out there. But yeah, it, it, it was humming along, just like you mentioned, Lupin, yeah. Babo. Or- but there was, there was definitely this narrative that that um, killed the business. And um, it's not really, not really true, um, for better or worse. I mean, it just it didn't look like that from where we were sitting exactly. I mean, there were, there were things that changed definitely. Um, you know, the, the, the look of, of the way we did business changed in a lot of ways. Um, but you know, Serena had already been sort of hurting not to get, you know, not to talk out of school too much, but like we were already kind of struggling to, to, um, not really struggling. I mean, I think the restaurant was doing fine, but like, you know, there was already the question of, is it really worth it to try to keep this going? Um, so, yeah. 
And you, so, and you remained at Lupa up until the pandemic. Yes, that's correct. correct. So I guess. And so this is, I want to, before I forget, I want to chat with you for a few minutes about Italian wine, Mm -hmm. because that is one of my regrets is that I didn't go further into that when we were both in the hearth Mm. terroir universe, because there was certainly an opportunity to do that. It just wasn't my thing at the time. My reason for being there was Riesling at the time. And, you know, that's, you, you could do worse than to be at, at those places and to be immersing yourself in a Riesling deep dive. Like I went to Germany for the first time. I went to the Finger Lakes for the first time. Like I, I definitely got my money's worth out of Riesling study, uh, in that, uh, during that time. But I'm curious, did you go deep at hearth with Italian wine before going to the that very Italian restaurant group that Not you went to? Which is why it's a miracle that I was allowed near this incredible cellar, not to be too self-deprecating here, but um, no, I mean like working at Hearth, you're going to, if you pay attention and you're interested, it's like kind of like Psalm school, right? So you come out, you know, after working there for, you know, three or four years, you've accrued uh, some knowledge about the entire world of wine, really. Um, And so I had an understanding uh, that, you know, someone on the street wouldn't have typically. I mean, I, I, but I didn't, you know, I couldn't tell you, you know, like uh, I couldn't talk to you about like sub zones of Chianti Classico or something like that. Um, but I knew that, you know, Chianti and Chianti Classico were not the same thing. And I knew basically why, um, but I couldn't, I couldn't go into detail that I can now. Um, but I knew enough, I think, to sell wine, which is basically your, well, not basically, which is your job as a Psalm is to provide hospitality, so to speak. And, and sell juice. And, you know, that, that to me, um, you know, I, that was something I felt like I I could do. And I was right about that. I mean, you don't need to be. Well, and, and you mentioned, you mentioned coming out of hearth with, with uh, a few years experience there and what that taught you. And I look back on that time and I, I compare that to what you might've learned elsewhere or within one of those certification mm. sequences. And, and, and I know that there's a lot of people who love certification sequences and I, I myself have, have gone through a yeah. few levels of those, but looking back at when, when Paul Greco was really on top of the wine world and I, and I sound like a broken record because I've spoken on this on a couple other episodes, but, yeah. but I mean, he, he was important back then and I just remember the monthly masterclasses that we were all required yeah. to go to, but it wasn't like you had to make us go. Every single one of us could not wait to get there. Yeah, no, it was great. They were so good. And like, you know, I sort of, um, it's funny because my, my, my attitude towards education is different now than it was then. Like I became more, I agree with you. Like I never, I always looked forward to, to his performances is really what they were. Um, but his, his master classes, um, because they're super fun. And also you're tasting, you know, at the time it was, it was, I was newer to the world of wine and it was more novel and more exciting in a way to, to, sit there and, you know, taste a bunch of wine for free. Um, so that was part of it. His personality was definitely a huge part of it. The main part of it. Um, I mean, he reminded me of, uh, of a certain kind of university professor that would really put a lot of effort into yeah. their lectures. I mean, his lectures had shape. They had a beginning, a yeah. middle and an end. Yeah, it was, it was really, it was really great. And, um, 
Yeah, so there there were there were master classes on Italian wine. Um but really like, you know, what I gained from Hearth to 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 bring it back to comparing it to different certifications, which I think is a really interesting comparison. And, you know, in some ways I'm not entirely qualified to talk about it. I mean, I've, I've never been, you know, I haven't done any certifications, but I have a lot of friends who have. And so I have sort of an idea and I've, I've been in tasting groups where we use the same kind of rubric. Um, so I hear, and you know, we talk, so, um, and I think what I'm most grateful for from from working there was uh, obviously the access to all of the great uh, products, but specifically uh, with respect to wine, the sort of more esoteric uh, parts of the world of wine, um, you know, that were, I think, handled pretty much the best way you possibly can, because I think a lot of wine bars and a lot of restaurants who deal heavily in, I guess, what you might call, you know, some of the, you know, regions that aren't as well known, you know, outside of the sort of Italy, France, Germany, US, Chile, Argentina, whatever, you know, are, are, are kind of doing it for its own sake or to be quirky or, and, you know, I think Paul enjoyed being quirky, but, um, this was high quality wine. I mean, we were, we were talking about, it's not like we were bringing in stuff just to make the list look challenging or esoteric or, you know, erudite or anything like that. Um, although I, I, like I said, I think he maybe enjoyed, that element of it. Um, but it was all good wine. I mean, you know, at the time I, I didn't know as much as I do now, but you know, for the most part I knew like we, we were, we weren't drinking junk here. I mean, every once in a while there would be something kind of funny or offbeat, or you, you might say took an acquired taste or something like that. But, um, yeah, so so I learned what I learned was that other um underappreciated wine regions were also important and um deserved to be uh you know celebrated. Um which was a really it's really interesting progression because typically when you're learning about wine you learn that later rather than first, but that was one of the first things I learned when I was sort of getting into the world of wine. Um, and it's really helped. It's kind of made me cynical in a lot of ways. I mean, you know, hearth is different from, from all the other restaurants I've worked in, but for a lot of ways, uh, for a lot of reasons, but, um, you know, I sort of found after I left hearth that most people, we're not as excited about say like, you know, Tokai or something <laughs> as I would be. Um, or maybe Madeira. Right. I mean, let's talk about how many different bottles of Sherry Madeira. Right. Vermouth. I mean, Sherry is a little different because <laughs> there was definitely a, a trend happening uh, around the time I left. And I think, you know, Paul had to have something to do with that, but you know, Sherry was starting to get trendy. Madeira, though, you know, Madeira is amazing. It's just amazing stuff. And people didn't know, and they still don't. And, um, you know, I felt I left Hearth, you know, wanting to sort of be an advocate for Madeira um, and for Riesling. Well, and were you you behind the bar when I I think it was, might have been. David Flaherty, who was primarily buying spirits back then, and he was on the first oh, episode yeah. of this podcast. Um, were you around when the the spirits all became New York State spirits for a yeah, point so in time? At the time, I, I, well, not all the spirits, but we had to use um, the cocktails. All had to include and really be focused on a New York spirit 
which looking back is, is a, is a great challenge. Um, and, uh, you know, looking back, I think that was so cool that we did that. Um, but now, especially since like, you know, a lot of those products were, some of them were quite high quality and good. Some of them, you know, were not, you know, like some of the whiskeys and stuff, not as, as refined as, you know, classic and famous bourbon. Um, so it was, it was harder to make a really, really delicious cocktail out of, or I thought it was, it used to drive me a little nuts because we had, you know, we didn't just have these New York spirits. We had all of, you know, I, I wanted to use this particular bourbon that I like, but it wasn't made in New York. And so, you know, we had to, we had to get around it some, some, somehow. So I would find myself splitting, trying to cheat. And David would be like, no, you can't cheat. You got to use the, you know, whatever it was. (laughs) Um, Well, I want to, I want to, let's use this as a, as a way to start talking about spirits specifically. But first, Jad, can I tell you about, Drink local wine night. All right, here we go. So most local wineries, wherever local is for you, are hanging on through the pandemic. Through a combination of loyal wine club members, online orders, and a big dose of creativity, they've been able to stay afloat over the past 10 months when their tasting rooms were either closed or significantly restricted. If you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a lover of local wines. And the wineries that make the wines we all love need our help. The team at Cork Report Media and I hope that you'll join us and wine lovers across the country on April 10th, 2021 for Open Local Wine Night, a celebration of exactly that, local wine. It's super easy to participate. Just buy some local wine, open it on April 10th, and post a picture on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook with the hashtag OpenLocalWine. It is really as easy as that. And if you're a winery that would like to participate, please visit thecorkreport.us to register. Jad, can I count on you? April 10th, open you local wine night. Or open, oh, maybe local spirit night. That could Why be not? pretty cool. Uh, I'll, 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 uh, I'll let you be the only one who's allowed to, to play local you know, spirit I, I gotta say, that night. New York so, spirits have come a long way. Um, so yeah, yeah and, and it's like insane how many oh, distilleries so many. there are now. I'm embarrassed. So okay, let's uh, let's we'll, we'll get into specifically what some of those are, but let's talk about okay. So now we've been in this pandemic; it's going to be a year before we know it, and a lot of drinkers out there are feeling good about their home bar. They've they've taught themselves how to make some drinks, and there's been a lot of content out there on exactly that: what you need for your bar you know, the basics, this, that, and the other. So what I want you to talk about is now that everybody's got their basics, their fundamentals, next steps. What do we do to take the bar to the next level? And I want to start by telling you about my bar, which is really simple. there's There's only a few bottles in it, but like as I'm looking at the bottles right now, I, there's like five drinks that you can make with this minimum amount of bottles. So here's what's in my bar. I used to like have a a much uh, a much more grand presentation of liquor bottles, and but I've I've whittled it down because I really just like to drink these these few things right now. So here's what I got. I got a bottle of okay. mezcal. What what kind a of bottle mezcal? of Campari? Uh, Yola 1971. Okay. That might not even be the brand. I don't even know, Jad. I'd have to get up and go look at the the label. (laughs) But that's what it says. (laughs) Okay, so I've got a bottle of Mezcal. Let's just leave it at that. Got a bottle of Campari. I have a bottle of Sweet Vermouth. And I have one additional bottle of Amaro. Uh, I usually have Campari around, but then I always have like one darker Amaro, whether it's Braulio or China. This one happens to be from Fourth Ave Spirits, which is a... a New York City distillery. Um, and so right there, four bottles uh, yeah. of things. But I bet you can think of like five drinks um, to make. 
let's assume I also always have a bottle of sparkling wine uh, in my fridge when I need that for cocktails yeah. as well. Um, yeah. Now, now you can make about 20 drinks with that. No question. Once you throw the sparkling <laughs> wine in. Um, you, it's funny because you were sort of like one level away, but when you, even if you like set the mezcal aside and you, you add sparkling wine, you've just, you know, you, the number of combinations with the different bitters and the sparkling wine, you can, you can make lots of different aperitifs with, you know, different focuses depending on how much bitterness or, um, bubbliness or whatever that you want. Um, so let me, let me throw some drinks at you that I make with this small, uh, set of spirits and wine. So obviously the Negroni, I mean, I don't even know when the Negroni became the emperor of the universe of cocktails. Not sure when that was, but it happened at some point. And the cool thing about a Negroni is when you learn how to make one, there's like infinite variations that you can make beyond that. So we know that a Negroni typically consists of gin, an ounce of gin, an ounce of sweet vermouth, and an ounce of Campari, or, you know, substitute any other uh, you know, lighter, bitter Amaro that you want or sweet vermouth. Uh, and typically, you know, your, your preferred gin, we pour that over ice. We stir it around. We add an orange twist. Voila, yep. you've got your Negroni. Orange twist is very important. Now I can also make a Mezcal Negroni with Mezcal with those exact right. same ingredients. Which is- You can also make a, a, a whiskey Negroni. You can make a tequila Negroni. I mean, it, it really doesn't end. Uh, that's one of the reasons Negroni is such a great cocktail is because there are limitless variations. Now I can also remove the the high ABV spirit and make an Americano with just the vermouth and the Campari. And I add soda water. So now you have essentially a low ABV version of the Negroni. I can make a spritz. Maybe we'll call it a Spagliato. So we've got same vermouth, Campari, sparkling wine. And now we're drinking with a lime wedge, just Pagliato. So, and it just goes on and on and on. So I wanted to just throw that out there to kind of, you know, wet the whistle and get it started for you to riff. Yeah. Um, so one thing, and this, you know, one thing I would, I would say is that if you really want to expand your possibilities, um, a shaker doesn't have to be a, a fancy shaker um, and a silicone ice cube tray that can make large ice cubes um, are going to be helpful. And then, you know, fresh citrus, it's really just, if you have a bottle of mezcal laying around, you know, you really, it, it would be a shame not to be able to make some shaken um, sort of daiquiri style or margarita style drinks. Um, because to me, I mean, you know, I like, I like the Mezcal Negroni. I think it's a great drink. Some people are really, really in love with it. Um, you know, stirred Mezcal drink. I should say that the Mezcal Margarita is definitely in my arsenal. I mean, I always yeah. have limes. Everybody have can to, get limes at their to. local supermarket. And you can make right. simple syrup. So and that's it. it. That's, that's more important to me than being able to make almost more important, you know, when you're talking about tequila and mezcal, you want to be able to make shaken drinks because to me, that's where those spirits are at their absolute best. I mean, I, I like a mezcal Negroni, like I said, great drink, but you know, you want to be able to get the lime juice in there and the simple. So as far as, you know, home bar, the, the problem with, with citrus is that it doesn't keep right, um, you know? And I would I would just say invest in one of those yellow hand juicers. Those are great. You don't even need to strain the stuff. You know, at, at in restaurants we would always strain our, our citrus. It's not really that important. Um, you know, just having a, a a hand juicer so that you can you know get the juice of one lemon for one drink or uh, it would probably be more like half a lemon. You know, if it's two of you having drinks, one lemon, you know, you're not making a lot of juice 
and letting it sit in your fridge for days. Um, so if you're willing to do that, you can make really great, um, uh, you know, quick shaken cocktails. Another thing is, Paul, that I would recommend, you know, is shake with a large ice cube. Um, you can really get a, you know, if you have enough of them, if you have space in your freezer, keep a couple silicone trays. Um, if you shake with a large ice cube, you can get a much finer kind of foam on the drink. Um, it's just, you know, you can shake the drink for longer and get it colder without diluting it as much. So that, that gives you uh, a lot more control. Um, and it, it, it also lengthens the amount of time. Um, once you've poured the drink, uh, you, you, you buy yourself some time in terms of how long it's going to stay fresh. Uh, the, the drink itself will stay fresh and, and sort of crisp. So, um, shake with a big cube if you can too. Uh, and then, yeah. Okay, uh, you mentioned, you mentioned a drink and I want to, I want to talk about this drink because you just, you just got me excited. Uh, I, I mean, I'm, we're, we're coming on the end of dry January right now right. for many of us. And like this conversation I, just has me wanting to go and drink straight out of my mezcal bottle. Um, but soon enough, yeah. soon enough. Um, okay. Yep. The daiquiri overrated or underrated? Daiquiri. Well, you know, I think we have to add a third, a third option there, which is perfectly rated, you know, not everything is overrated or underrated. I think there are drinks that are perfectly rated. And I think that a daiquiri is a drink that lives up to the hype. Um, you know, it became, I can understand the reluctance to submit to every like cool industry phenomenon like that and just be like, oh yes, this is, this is the greatest cocktail. I, I, I am contrarian in, in the way that I, I don't want to admit to liking the thing that everyone likes, but you know, it really is kind of unimpeachable with just a simple, nice white rum, a really fresh, really fresh lime juice, perfectly balanced. It's kind of like, you know, and you're going to get more complexity in wine, but I kind of liken it to like a, just a really solid young, um, off dry Riesling from. I mean, I was hoping you were going to say underrated cause that's sort of how it I could feel. be. It's definitely not. I, I think that the daiquiri got good a to be overrated. Yeah. I think it's borderline underrated, but I liked your answer. Um, Okay. What else? What else? Uh, more so, bar hacks. I think the best bar hack, and this is going to sound like a slightly ridiculous answer, but I'm going to say it because I think it's true, is learning how to actually make a cocktail, um, you know, isn't going to, you know, learning, learning drink by drink, you're not going to accrue the kind of knowledge that you need to be able to improvise, right? Which is ultimately the goal, because if you have a home bar, you know, the, the biggest issue for home bartenders is, well, I only know two drinks, you know, I don't know, I don't know how to improvise. And I think that the way to, to learn how to do that, or one way to learn how to do that in the pandemic is to go on YouTube and just watch someone, you know, watch a pro, um, make classic cocktails. And I, I fell down this rabbit hole anyway, even though I already kind of knew all this stuff. Um, but I found it fun, uh, to watch someone like Jim Meehan, um, who was, you know, still, I think still considered a, you know, a, a kind of a luminary in the, in the bar world. Um, but even maybe even more so back when I was starting, um, you know, watching him make a margarita, uh, a daiquiri, a Manhattan, all the classics, and sort of understanding, getting an understanding, just watching someone do it. Um, I sort of feel the same way about cooking, although I'm not, you know, maybe it's just that I'm a visual learner. Um, 
But like, I think there's this tendency for the, the enthusiast at home to kind of focus on the gear, you know, what kind of shaker do I get? What, what kind of glassware should I buy? And that's all fun. Um, but ultimately you, you have to just know how to balance, um, you know, rum and lime juice and bitters and, and all these ingredients. That's the most important thing. And then you have to know how to shake a drink and you have to know how long to do it for what it's supposed to feel like, um, and look like. Um, and I think a lot of the time, the best way to get a sense of that is to watch someone do it on YouTube, um, or on Instagram or whatever. Like I'm sure everyone has their favorite celebrity bartenders, but Jim Meehan has a lot of really great, um, and quick, easy, uh, easy to understand videos. Um, another thing, uh, Fred well, before before you before you go on, because you mentioned something there that I I would like you to go a little bit okay. more granular on. Talk about the differences between shaking a drink and stirring a drink. So you know, shaking drinks are your um, uh, acidic, refreshing, um, uh, sort of bracing drinks that you you might have when you're th- when you're actually thirsty. Um, I don't necessarily recommend people, you know, drink, uh, daiquiris to, to quench their thirst, but you know, I've done it more than a handful of times. So who am I to say, but drinks that have citrus in them need to be shaken. So that is a bad, bad hangover. One too many rum daiquiris. Yeah. Yeah. It, it, but they're so bad. They really disappear quickly. Um, so yeah, that's, that's it. That's the rule. Drinks with citrus need to be shaken. Drinks that are all spirit need to be um, stirred. And, you know, there are like some exceptions, uh, very few, but that's, that is pretty much a hard and fast rule. Um, so drinks that are shaken are going to have that kind of nice frothy, um, I guess you would call it crema if you're uh, um, a barista uh, or, you know, you know, you want, whereas with, with, uh, with a stirred drink, you're looking for, um, the right amount of dilution from stirring. You want, you want essentially the same amount of dilution in the drink, which would come from the ice, of course, but you're not looking to, to bruise or, um, create a a crema on the surface. You just want that, that clear, um, typically translucent, depending on, you know, what you're, products you're working with, of course, but in theory, translucent, um, and, uh, refreshing in its own way, but not, not something you would chug typically. I mean, I don't know about you, but, um, I I've chugged in a Negroni before. It's actually really recommended. Yeah. Those I can, I can, I can get behind that, but I can't chug a Manhattan. Oh man. I've come pretty close to doing it without realizing I was doing it. Um, but yeah. In th- it, typically not. No, you shouldn't do that. Um, yeah, and that's that's. So so okay. So like we've we've mentioned uh, various drinks that are that are shaken that typically go well with citrus. We've talked about. Uh, we've talked a little bit about some different spirits. What are some good bottles to to keep around that are beyond the basics? A little. Okay, so. Here's where I fall on this is maybe a little different than most people. So I think that it's, it's probably not even necessary to have one of every spirit, unless you're really a Renaissance person when it comes to making cocktails. Um, you can do a lot with just one clear spirit and one dark. Um, and you can do a lot with, um, you know, and this, this, I have to credit my time at hearth for this. You can do a lot with what's in your pantry. So, um, I think a home bartender's focus should be on using what they have, um, rather than, than adding things necessarily. I think learning how to make things like orgeat, or falernum, or different cordials and shrubs, and things that you know, things that can that you can use with 
the things that you can make from ingredients that you have in your fridge that you didn't even know you had sometimes. Um, having those things around is huge. Um, and it's also like, you don't always have time to, to cook something in a restaurant if, you know, for service or in a cocktail bar. So you can, you know, you can kind of at home, you have more time to play around with, with flavors and whatnot. Um, so I would definitely say that, you know, as far as secondary, uh, bottles, meaning not, you know, not spirits, vermouth is a must, um, sweet vermouth first, probably, unless you're a, a, a dry martini drinker and you just have to have dry vermouth around all the time. Um, I like Antica, uh, Carpano Antica a lot. I know a lot of people do. Um, it's expensive, but I think it's worth it. Um, but there are other good ones that you just have to kind of find the one you like, I think. Um, and then, yeah, Amari are pretty important. You know, it's like you really do need them, um, for cocktails. They, they make, they give you so much flexibility with, as we were talking about Negroni variations, but you can make, you know, they're kind of a, uh, an Amaro is kind of a cocktail in and of itself because it's got so many different flavors already concentrated in there. And sometimes just adding a little soda or sparkling wine can really, you know, um, adding that acidity or that bubble can really open things up and give you a, a, a full cocktail experience where you're not necessarily missing the spirit backbone. It's already got, um, it's already got, well, alcohol, but also that kind of bitterness, maybe even some tannin, maybe some, um, certainly a lot of different herbs and, um, and spices and so on. So you get a lot of complexity with very little that way. And that's why Amaro is so great because it's packed so much. And in general, I, I, I tend to prize complex, um, concentrated flavors more than, uh, you know, other things that may be delicious, but, you know, might get lost when, when they're competing with like Campari or blackstrap rum in a drink. Um, so when I'm building a bar, I think of, of, I'm looking for, for, uh, augment, augment, um, augmentation that has strong flavor that I can make, uh, you know, surprising combinations with that are interesting putting, you know, um, you know, like a, a white vermouth that I love the subtle flavors of is much like less likely to make it into a, to a cocktail. Um, unless it's, you know, unless I'm drinking it with soda or something that's, that's not going to get in the way of the beauty of that, um, and the delicacy of that product. So I would definitely say, you know, once you get past spirits, um, I would put Amaro and Vermouth more or less on the same level because you can actually make a lot of, um, a lot of cocktails that call for sweet Vermouth. You can substitute Amaro. You're going to lose some acidity there, um, some lift, but you can make kind of a, a slightly heavier, more wintry version of a Manhattan or a Martinez or what have you. Um, so I, I would put, I would put Amaro on the same level of, uh, essentialness as vermouth. And then after that, you know, um, you need some kind of triple sec, you know, um, or curacao or some kind of orange liqueur. Cointreau's great. It's in a lot of drinks. Um, you know, I like Grand Marnier too. I know it has its, these things all have various stigmas and associations. Um, but I think it's also just delicious. And, um, you know, so some kind of orange liqueur is, is a must. Um, and then once, once, once you've got those three things, um, especially if you have gin or bourbon or rye to go with it, you can make maybe hundreds of cocktails. I don't know a lot. 
Okay, so just to recap, and so we're, we're coming up on an hour here, so this is a good place for for us to cadence. So we've talked about the powerful Negroni in all its glory and its many variations. We've talked about how the daiquiri is certainly not overrated. We've talked about making use of things in your fridge and in your pantry, things that you just have kicking around, like maple syrup can be used yeah. in drinks. What else? What's what's one or two pantry yep. items? That's a perfect um, one. Honey syrup is another one. Um, yeah. There we go. Cinnamon syrup. We've cinnamon talked syrup about the necessity. Underrated, of- I think. If you have cinnamon sticks lying around, make it okay. make a quick cinnamon syrup. It keeps for a long time. Yeah. We've talked about big ice cubes. We've talked about sort of the staples. You got to have vermouths around. You got to have Amari around. Uh, okay. So I want to finish. I would like you to pick uh, at random a New York State spirit, whether from back in the day at Hearth or something new. And create a drink around it for us. Okay. So, man, you're putting me on the spot here. So one one spirit that I used to always gravitate towards was Green Hook Gin. Um, it's, it's hardly obscure at this point. I mean, you see it around a lot. Um, and the reason I loved it was because it was pretty strong. I mean, it came in around... I don't know, hundred proof or so, um, which was kind of a tick above the the London Dry in terms of uh, heat, um, and so it 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 was hard to bury in a drink. I mean, it was going to stick out no matter what. Um, but it also had some of the the sort of pretty herbal uh, green qualities that you know sometimes can be muted a little more muted in say i don't know beef eater or boodles or something like that i mean they're there but they're not as um floral and botanical um so i used to love green hook because it had so much complexity and power um for cocktails um and you know any negroni variation but let's see so what am i working with here do I have, uh, am I using your bar or am I using the, anything, anything, anything else you want? I just wanted you to lead with a New York. Yeah. So green hook, um, is going to be my favorite New York gin. It's, it's been a while since I've kind of gone through them and I know gin is, you know, one of the greatest strengths of New York spirits. I think there's, there's probably more great gins than any other spirit. Um, but I love green hook. So I would do that. And I'm going to go for one of my favorite, um, my favorites, which is kind of a, it's a, it's a sour, but it's, um, employing Earl gray. And I don't want to get too complicated here, but it really isn't hard. So if you can just make an Earl gray syrup, which you can do quickly using, you know, any old Earl Grey from the grocery store, Twinings, honestly, the cheaper, the better, just as long as you have that, that bergamot flavor, um, you know, and you can just Google Earl Grey syrup and something will come up. But, um, so it's gin, Earl Grey syrup. Um, we're going to do an egg white, um, some fresh lemon juice and that's it. And then we're going to do Angostura bitters on top. Um, and it's essentially, it's an Earl Grey sour. Um, and it's just one of my favorite, it's just one of my favorite cocktails ever. It's just, it's, it's rich, creamy, herbaceous, really, you can really, the, the, the citrus oils, the, the lemon oil with the, the bergamot combination is just awesome. Um, you know, you have to like that bergamot flavor of course to enjoy this drink but if you do it's just one of my favorites um and then uh you can also modify it you can do less gin and you can throw in a little amontillado sherry and that's great or a little strega which is i know one of your favorite after dinner drinks paul um you know those things those are all things that can get thrown in there um you know, in balance, of course, to make a, a really rich, exciting, 
complex, delicious cocktail. Earl Grey Sour. An Earl Grey Sour sounds delicious, and you are so right. I have not thought about Strega <laughs> like once in the last year. So, man, I might have to uh, get myself a I bottle of that. But I'll, I'm definitely going to try out your Earl Grey Sour, yeah. and uh, I'll get back to you. And listeners, if any of you try it out, uh, shoot us a note over at the Cork Report uh, homepage and let us All know right. how that went. Yeah, this is perfect. We are we're we're exactly at an hour now. And it was great oh, to catch man. up, man, and and hear uh, what you've been up to, and just uh, you know shoot the shit again as we. As yeah, we used I, to. thanks for having me. I would love to do it again soon. Uh, it was a ton of fun. Thank you. Thank you very much to Jad Kamal. Thank you, of course, as always, to Dave Miller for our opening and closing music. Check him out, DaveMillerGuitar.com. Coming up next on the Northern Wine Odyssey series, we're going to hear from Christy Frank, very talented wine retail personality. We're going to be talking about the Catawba grape and the Muscat grape, and probably some other things. And don't forget, Open Local Wine Night, April 10th, 2021. Super easy. Get yourself a local wine, wherever that is. Open it up, take a picture, put hashtag. See you next episode.